This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. Welcome to the Science Podcast for February 12th, 2016. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Kareen Samanti talks about inheriting DNA from Neanderthals and how that might affect one's health. And David Grimm is back with the latest from our online daily news site. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on criminal confessions. What does lack of sleep do to you? For me, in all seriousness, no sleep means no attention span and no patience. For others, it could mean a dangerous reduction in self-control. What about you, Dave? Basically, no sleep just turns me into a zombie. (laughs) (laughs) All the negative connotations of being a zombie, except I don't eat anybody's brain. (laughs) (laughs) What about this uh, reduction in self-control? Why are we talking about that? Well, this has been an issue with having suspects confess to crimes that they may not commit. Why it's especially an issue is a lot of times when cops will extract a confession from somebody. This person has been up for an inordinate amount of time. They're super stressed out. One of the ways that agencies, both in America and beyond, used to get confessions from, say, terrorist suspects and things like that is to deny sleep as a way of extracting a confession. And so one of the questions this study asked was, well, what impact does actually have on our psyche? Are we more willing to confess to a crime, even one that we didn't commit, if we're suffering from lack of sleep? Being in custody and being questioned by the police, it sounds pretty stressful just by itself. But then also add sleep deprivation on top of that. It's a pretty stressful situation. How do the researchers in the study try to replicate that scenario? Well, the crime in question wasn't, wasn't really much of a crime. But basically, researchers recruited about 90 students from Michigan State. And they split them into two groups. What all the students did was they sat down in front of a computer and they had to fill out a questionnaire. Now, the researchers told them, this is very important. You cannot press the escape key while you're filling out these questionnaires. Otherwise, it's going to erase all the data on the computer. And then half of the subjects went home, got a good night's sleep, and the other half were kept up all night Mm -hmm. by the researchers playing card games, watching TV, 
even playing Scrabble. So some students got sleep and some didn't. Did any of them commit this crime and did any of them admit to it? <laughs> well, nobody committed the crime because the researchers were tracking keystrokes and they know that nobody pressed the escape key. But the next morning, they asked the students to sign a confession that they had pressed the escape key because they told everybody, you have pressed the escape key and you are guilty. Now sign a confession. For the students that had got a good night's sleep, very few of them, in fact, only eight of the 44 signed the confession. The researchers asked them to sign it again, and this time the number doubled. But even at that, there was only you know a fairly small portion of the students signing the confession. Now compare that to the students that did not get any sleep, and Half of them signed the confession the first time around, and 30 out of the 44 signed the confession the second time around. I'm a little bit surprised by both numbers. Both the people who got sleep and didn't get sleep, some of them were like, yeah, I probably just erased all that data and didn't listen to you. But the sleepless were more likely to confess to a crime. Does this mean we should make sure everyone gets a good night's sleep before police interviews? <laughs> well, it certainly seems to indicate that sleep loss can play a factor in false confessions. And pressing the escape thing is one thing. Admitting to a murder that you didn't commit is quite something else. And that's why the scientists hope that the people in the justice system take these types of studies seriously. Next up, we have a story on a surprising host for malaria. I say malaria, you think mosquitoes, right? Not white-tailed deer. It turns out researchers looking at malaria in birds accidentally found malaria in deer. How did this happen? They were using PCR, which is a technology which amplifies DNA, even very, very low levels of DNA and makes it more easily detectable. What the surprise was is they expected to find malaria in these birds that they were looking at because birds are known, even birds in North America are known to harbor malaria, a type of malaria that's not dangerous to humans. There had been no mammals known in North America, at least endemic to North America, that harbor malaria. So they were surprised when they started looking at these birds. They found a malaria parasite, but it was a malaria parasite that they ultimately traced to white-tailed deer. And this was right here in D.C., in the center of the park running through the city. And they found malaria in an animal that we see every day if we live in the country or occasionally driving around at night in D.C. What is malaria doing in a deer? Is it a dangerous infection? Are there a lot of kinds of malaria? Well, that's a good question. We know there's a lot of different kinds of malaria. There's more than 100 species of malaria parasites around the world. And again, most of these are not problematic for people, as is the case with this deer malaria. We also don't know whether this is actually causing problems for the deer. That's sort of the, one of the next steps is to figure out if these deer are getting any sort of malaria-type symptoms that we see in, in people and potentially other animals. Once they made that initial discovery here... They went further afield and to see if this was a consistent issue. Where else did they look? They looked at 300 deer across the country. They looked in the, in the west and in the east. 25% of the animals they tested had this parasite, but most of them were in the east. In fact, I don't believe they found any malaria parasites in western deer. As we said, this isn't a threat for people, but it does tell us more about malaria's life history. Yeah, one of the questions is the geography of malaria. Where did it come from? How did these particular strains get here. We know that these deer, at least the ancestors of these deer, made their way to North America across the Bering Land Bridge somewhere between 2.3 million and 6 million years ago. So it's possible that they've harbored the malaria parasite for that long and brought it over with them from the old world. Lastly, we have a story on why cockroaches are so hard to kill. I just spent 
a few seconds too many, Googling, can cockroaches live in microwaves? <laughs> I had heard about it in the past, and after reading the story, I wanted to know more about cockroaches' resiliency. So unfortunately, when I did that Google search, all I found was advice on how to get rid of them. So, yeah, it does seem like a cockroach can live in a microwave. Gross. <laughs> how are they able to get inside? How are they able to kind of creep around and be so omnipresent in our lives? Well, that's a big question. I mean, what what makes cockroaches, first of all, so resilient? Why can we seemingly step on them and they run away? And why can they get into so many nooks and crannies in our house? And it turns out those two things are pretty intimately related to each other. So the researchers did all these tests in this in one of the studies that we're going to talk about to show what a cockroach can actually get inside of. How do they quantify their compressibility? <laughs> well, there's a video on the site if you want to watch it. It's not for the squeamish, but they basically, you know, they put these insects through kind of a bit of an obstacle course. One of the things they did was they coaxed the cockroaches through ever smaller slits or tighter tunnels just to see how much they could compress their bodies into these really small spaces and then recover and walk away. And the other thing they did was actually lower weights of up to 100 grams onto different parts of the cockroaches' bodies and watched how the creatures collapsed and then sprang back. So the key here is that they did these things to cockroaches, they survived, and they found out more about the mechanics of their bodies. What's really interesting about cockroaches is you would expect maybe something like an octopus, which we also know can squeeze into very tight spaces, to be able to do that because it has such a very bendy flexible body. We don't really associate that much with cockroaches. What they do have, though, is they have these hard plates that are also bendable and compressible. And these plates kind of slide past each other as the insect shrinks down. So it's kind of like a spring that you can sort of compress. And then when that compression is done, everything springs back to its original. Then they took this information, you know, what cockroaches do to get into tight spots, and they translated it into a robot. What does this robot look like? Well, they built a 75-millimeter-tall robot called, appropriately enough, Cram. Mm. And it's got a roach-like collapsible exoskeleton that works a lot like the cockroaches we've been talking about. And what they were able to do is it can actually squeeze to one-half of its height and still move five to ten times faster than robots with soft bodies. So maybe this is the future of flexible robot designs. Instead of trying to make really sort of squishy robots, we can still make hard robots, but just figure out how to make them compress themselves. And why do we want squishy robots, hard robots, <laughs> compressible robots? What, what's with all these different kinds of bots? Well, you can think of everything from extraplanetary robots that would be exploring, say, Mars and have to get into little nooks and crannies or get over very tough terrain surfaces. Or you can think about robots here on Earth that might be used for surveillance, for search and rescue, that might have to get into rubble inside of a building and would have to really be very flexible in how they are able to maneuver their bodies to get where they need to go. Okay, what else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Sarah, we've got a story about a new ozone hole, which appears to be developing over the Arctic. And we've got stories about the big news about detecting gravitational waves or ripples in the fabric of space-time. Pretty cool stuff. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about the new science budget proposed by U.S. President Barack Obama and what that means for science funding. Also, our continuing coverage on the Zika virus, everything you need to know, everything you need to be afraid about, and everything you may not need to be afraid about. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. 
I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. Due to a series of interbreeding events about 50,000 years ago between modern humans and Neanderthals, many people alive today are walking around with DNA inherited from Neanderthals. In fact, most Eurasians have somewhere between 1.5 and 4% Neanderthal DNA. These genes aren't showing up as obvious physical traits like overhanging brows and arms fit for wielding clubs. But what kinds of traits are associated with Neanderthal inheritance? I spoke with Corinne Samanti about her group's efforts to compare health records and genomes and tease out the Neanderthal influence on health. Our study is building on previous work that has shown that humans, after they left Africa, interacted with and interbred with Neanderthals around 50 to 60,000 years ago. And this has resulted in the genomes of European and Asian individuals being comprised of about 1.5 to 3% Neanderthal DNA. And so this led to the big question of what does this Neanderthal DNA actually do in modern humans? Is it beneficial? Is it detrimental? Does it not have much effect at all? And we realized that we could answer this question using a unique resource, and this resource is a database of electronic medical records from 28,000 people linked to genetic information. And so we can identify Neanderthal DNA in each of these individuals and test whether or not it increases or decreases the risk for a whole host of diseases. And indeed, we did find that Neanderthal variants influence many clinical traits in modern humans. How do we know something is inherited from a Neanderthal ancestor, or how do we know it's a Neanderthal gene? Well, to identify Neanderthal DNA, we actually have to take each person's genome and look for regions that match the Neanderthal genome more closely than other modern human genomes from populations that didn't interbreed with Neanderthals, so like modern-day Africans. And so we have to compare each region and say, oh, yes, you did match Neanderthal genome more closely. This is likely a region that came from a Neanderthal. It's interesting that you mentioned genes in particular because it seems to be that most Neanderthal DNA doesn't influence gene function, but more when and where and to what degree genes are turned on. This is a really big sample of people and health records. You said 28,000, right? Where did this data set come from? My home institution, Vanderbilt, is a part of a consortium of nine hospitals from around the United States that has both electronic health record data connected to genetic information for tens of thousands of people, so even more than I looked at in this study. And electronic health records are a great resource because they allow you to look at diseases that really encompass practically every biological system in your body and allow us to sort of extrapolate. Neanderthal DNA has an effect on this disease. This disease is involved in these systems or affects these systems. It's really a great resource. And the designers of the database that I was using, which is the eMERGE network, never expected that it would be used for evolutionary studies, but really demonstrates the importance of collecting and sharing data across large consortia like the Precision Medicine Initiative is intending to do. What kinds of health issues did end up getting linked to Neanderthal inheritance based on the data that you looked at? Maybe before I tell you what we found, maybe we should tell you what we expected to find. Okay. Uh, I'm try to put this in a bit of context. So we thought that we would find associations with traits involved in interaction with the environment. 
as our ancestors moved out of Africa, they're really adapted to African environments and climates and pathogens. And so they were encountering new climates, eating new things, encountering many new pathogens, whereas Neanderthals and their ancestors had already been living in these environments for hundreds of thousands of years and were probably better adapted. And so the thought was that Neanderthal DNA would be influencing traits that allowed you to interact with your environment a bit better. And so we actually did find Neanderthal DNA influencing several traits that fell into this interaction with the environment category. Our strongest association was with blood clotting, which doesn't really sound like something that would help you interact with the environment, but coagulation is actually an early stage of immune response to bacteria that manage to enter your bloodstream. Uh, we also found associations with a skin phenotype called actinic keratosis that is caused by dysfunction of these skin cells called keratinocytes. And keratinocytes are very important for protection from UV radiation, as well as wound healing and recruitment of immune factors. And then we also found a diet-related phenotype, uh, namely malnutrition. What do you mean by a diet, of, diet phenotype of malnutrition? Malnutrition, this particular, just due to the region that we find associated with malnutrition, we think that it actually has to do with your ability to absorb a particular nutrient that is important for carbohydrate metabolism. Those are all kind of falling in the expected category. What came out of the unexpected category? Yeah, so we were really excited to find our unexpected phenotypes, which were, we find that there was a surprising amount of influence on neurologic and psychiatric traits like nicotine addiction and depression. And yet Neanderthals did not smoke. <laughs> no, there was no uh, tobacco in, you know, Europe <laughs> or Asia at that time. But things that help predispose us to addiction are also involved in a whole host of other processes and in whole other systems that help us understand what's going on around us. And so this is likely one of those variants that didn't have much of an impact until you're actually exposed to tobacco. Right. How strong of an influence do you estimate the Neanderthal genes or the Neanderthal alleles that were inherited by these people, how strong of an effect would they have on these issues? Uh, that's a great question. We actually used two different methods to look at the impact of these Neanderthal regions on diseases. And so for cases like addiction and clotting, we found that a single Neanderthal region significantly increases your risk for a disease by about one and a half to three times. However, for depression and actinic keratosis, we actually were looking across all the regions where you could have possibly had Neanderthal DNA and looking at the influence of all of those regions together. So any individual bit of your genome might have a very small effect and it could actually be protective or detrimental. But altogether, they explain about 1% of your risk for either one of these phenotypes. Can I ask you to put that in a little bit more context? You know, how does this relate to some of the other predispositions that we've seen out there? Yeah, for our individual regions having an effect, we actually see a somewhat larger effect than most genetic studies find. Three times is pretty high for a genetic study to find. And most people haven't really looked at the second method that I mentioned that's looking across the genome. These are actually used for estimating heritability. It's mostly been looked at in the context of traits like height, which we know are very, very heritable. And so depression for the rest of your genome that has no chance of coming from Neanderthal 
has about 15% heritability in our population, and the Neanderthal DNA is another 1% of that heritability. Can we infer in the other direction? So if you have a depression or you smoke cigarettes, are you likely to have some Neanderthal variant in your genome? Well, it's certainly possible. Everything that we've looked at are complex diseases, which Mm -hmm. means that there's a large number of genetic factors, both coming from humans and coming from Neanderthal, as well as environmental factors. So, for example, you may not smoke because you don't have this uh, Neanderthal allele that predisposes you to smoking, or you may have just never picked up a cigarette. You can never discount the environment. A lot of these traits that we've been talking about are negatives. I mean, we're linking health problems with Neanderthal genes, but that's because of the data set in use, right? Your experiment was set up to find health impacts. There's no way of telling if there are positives using this data set, right? Well, yes and no. We could have found protective effects of these variants, but that's usually much more difficult in Mm -hmm. genetic studies, that usually the variant in question has to be pretty common for us to be able to say, yes, this definitely has a protective effect. But we did find several traits that didn't quite meet our significance threshold that were actually protective. But as I mentioned, you know, blood clotting, increase your clotting, increases risk for all these diseases I mentioned earlier, but also increased protection from bacterial pathogens. Like I said, it's much more difficult to find protective effects, but that doesn't mean that increasing your risk for one disease doesn't actually help you in another context. Kareen, thanks so much for talking with me. Thanks so much for having me. Kareen Samanti is a graduate student in human genetics at Vanderbilt University. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and many other places, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.